Take a network break. This week, we've got stories on quantum key distribution, financial results, and more. We're sponsored by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak to get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak. Uh, stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes podcast with Fortinet, where we're going to discuss the company's switching and wireless portfolio. Uh, and last but not least, if you like the network break, check out our other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Full Stack Journey. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's get to the news. Uh, BT, that's British Telecom, and Toshiba have launched a trial to test quantum key distribution on a metro fiber network in London. The test is using hardware and software from Toshiba that employs the quantum key distribution and key management elements. Right, so quantum key distribution, or quantum networking as it's sometimes called, is where you use simpatico vibrations in remote photons, and it's a very, very low bandwidth communication channel. But if you are doing the initial key exchange of data between two endpoints, in theory, that will become insecure in the future as our ability to crack signatures go. And one way to just solve that initial key exchange is to use quantum computing or quantum networking to solve the initial key vector exchange in any crypto handshake. I'm simplifying for the sake of the argument. If you want to understand more about this, we did a podcast with a professor from a university, Joshua Slater. Mm -hmm in heavy networking 598 and it's kind of mind-boggling we're talking about an, a networking capability where uh, photons actually have sympathetic vibrations so it's very low bandwidth and it's only suitable for this one thing of exchanging crypto keys uh, but it makes it what's believed to be completely secure so that's why the trial is expected to take about three years, Drew. Right. This is like rocket science. <laughs> this is, yes, very difficult stuff. Very difficult stuff. Yeah. Even just scratching the surface on, you know, quantum network and quantum key distribution, my head starts spinning. Yeah, this is one of these weird things that big companies can do sort of for funds. <laughs> um, and they can make some press out of it and they sort of, and then what will happen is sometime it'll just fade away because who needs quantum key distribution in 2022? I mean, yeah. By 2030, I'd say maybe, maybe later, there's some sort of demand for that, but I wouldn't have thought there's too much now. So seems a little odd, maybe. Yeah. I, so my assumption is that there are organizations worried about the ability to uh, crack encrypted communications or stored encrypted data eventually when quantum computing comes along and is usable. And that's what this, I guess, is supposed to thwart this key distribution mechanism using the mechanics of quantum, using the principles of quantum mechanics to let you detect, oh, wait, this line isn't secure. Um, don't send the transmission yet. No, it's to do with when you do the crypto handshake, you exchange a key. Yeah. And that asymmetric key exchange has to be as private as possible. Right. Or that's one thing. And if you ever have to exchange keys. Now, if you want to encrypt a network with not, with endpoints that don't have pre-exchanged keys, so normally what we do is we arrange to exchange keys out of band. But if you want to do it in band, quantum networking gives you a way to do that where people cannot intercept it. And so it changes the nature of encryption for that purpose. So it's really specific. That's why I was calling out the show we did. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It is a good show and you should check it out. Apparently, the accounting firm EY, formerly known as Ernst Young, has signed on as a customer to use this network to connect two of its offices in the London area. So there apparently is a paying customer for this. Mm, okay. Sounds a bit like a marketing. <laughs> could <you> be. <laughs> yes, could be. <laughs> 
I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I'll get you. I'll go. Sure, sure. Yeah, a customer. <laughs> They're Dang. in the press release, so. <laughs> They're in the press release. Yes, let's go with that. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on. Yeah, there's more to dig into if you want, but we'll have links in the show notes. Moving on. Uh, the startup Aviz, they make an enterprise version of the Sonic Open Source Network OS. They've announced $4 million in seed funding. Uh, Aviz is targeting enterprises that want to use Sonic, but don't necessarily have the in-house expertise to work with the raw open source version of Sonic. Yeah, I was watching some conversations the other day about Sonic and apparently even experienced developers who are used to working with Sonic, from the time that they download the latest release, they expect to take up to a week to compile the new version mm. due to challenges and problems, you know, and getting it to work on their target platform. And then after that, they go into testing and validation. It is not for the faint of heart. And obviously for most organizations, this represents a challenge. You don't want to have somebody on staff who's going to be able to just, you know, you can't, and you can't have just one person. You need a team of people, so yes. you've got redundancy and yep. failback. So the idea of paying somebody to do that for you, somebody like a V, is to get Sonic, and the advantages of Sonic on it, obviously, white box, multiple white box platforms, a choice of features, and and there are some cost advantages potentially. So potentially, uh, this sort of startup addresses that need. We know, for example, that Dell has its enterprise Sonic distribution, and we've seen a number of other startups. In fact, I note here, Drew, I did some some background searching, and Aviz is actually seems to have uh, one of the founders of Anovium on the board listed as a venture capitalist. Now, Anovium got sold for a billion odd to Marvell about a year ago, and they had a Sonic distribution. They had actually started doing an enterprise Sonic distribution for their Anovium silicon. So my guess would be is that they saw the market need back then, started putting this together, and now that they've been acquired, they've decided to fund a startup in the same space. So I think there's a need for this. Yeah, so the benefit, supposedly, of Sonic, of the whole white box model, is that I can choose whatever ASIC, whatever hardware uh, I want for whatever capabilities it has, and I've got a common network OS across the top and also potentially you know, free as in uh, having a free puppy. But yes, uh, that's the benefit. I Actually, you know what you said about that compiling issue, I saw a presentation mm. from Target about its use of Sonic in production, and I was expecting them to talk about, you know, oh, here's the routing stack we're using. Here's the use case. They spent most of their time talking about sort of the whole CI/CD process they had to put in place just to get the operating system up and running uh, and able to load it onto the switches. So yeah, there is a lot of mm. grunt work that has to happen before you can actually start using it. But they've got that sort of taken care of now and they are actually using it in production. So there is a case for Sonic in the enterprise. Yeah, I think so. And maybe for a certain type of enterprise, maybe it's not for everybody. There's still plenty right. of room for, you know, Junos and uh, NXOS and, you know, all the OSs that are out there. That's not to say, but for certain types of organizations, having one OS uh, across the suite on a plat various hardware might be something you want to go for. Right. And if you're looking for a supported version of these now gives you an op that option. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Uh, MetaGeek, they make Wi-Fi troubleshooting and spectrum analysis tools. They've been acquired by Alvic Networks for an undisclosed amount. Alvic's a Canadian-based provider of network management products. Yeah, I think the congruency here is that both companies are targeting the mid-market of the the enterprise, providing uh, Alvic is not, not exactly, but you know, sort of targeting that mid-market of network management, network visibility, asset management, configuration management. They've gotten very big very quickly. They've got a very slick operation, um, but very much been campus and WAN-centric. And I think this acquisition shifts them up into the Wi-Fi space. Obviously, MetaGeek was making mid-market Wi-Fi spectrum management and troubleshooting tools. They are really great for the sort of things that I did for a while, um, and I would recommend them to you on that basis. Um, and I think the merger here makes sense as Alvic wants to get out to the edge and start offering, you know, that 
toolkit for resellers. I think particularly resellers would want to have a set of toolkit around this where they could offer this to customers as a managed service. And maybe we'll see them head in that direction. It certainly fills a gap in Outlook's portfolio. They have things already like asset management, network performance monitoring, a flow analyzer and other tools, but having a Wi-Fi piece obviously is great if you want to roll up and say, yeah, we've got your full sort of networking package. Yeah, and culturally they're a match. Uh, MetaGeek was based out of Boise in Idaho, mm -hmm. and Alvic is based in Canada. Uh, so they're both sort of not in Silicon Valley. So the cultures might not clash there, which is <laughs> if if any one of them was a Silicon Valley and the other one wasn't, you know, sort of there there has to be a, a congruency there, which I think makes sense. I read the the blog from MetaGeek where the CEO was announcing uh, the acquisition, and it did. There, there is sort of a, kind of a nice homey feel about uh, the blog. So maybe mm. that is a, a cultural issue. Yes. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, US ISPs, Comcast, and Charter Communications are demonstrating the ability to push more bandwidth through existing cable in a race to reach 10 gigabits per second. They're talking about the DOCSIS 4.0 uh, technologies. Yeah, so if you uh, run a cable network, DOCSIS 3 is the current state of the art. I think it's sort of 1.5 gigabits up is the maximum and something down, blah, blah, blah. I'm not really sure what DOCSIS 3 is, uh, but they're talking here about DOCSIS 4 specifically and claiming that it will significantly increase the upstream capacity. So this time what they're doing with the modulation, instead of leaning heavily in to get as much downlink bandwidth as possible and just a limited uplink so that you can do like stream video, but nobody was uploading, obviously the world has changed and there's more of a demand for uplinking now as yes. people want to uh, do video conferencing and so forth. So DOCSIS 4 works into that. And they're talking uh, early tests that demonstrated in this trial show nine gig down and six gig up, which is extraordinary considering it works on the existing cable that everybody said, no, 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 I'll never go faster than this. So I think increasing the upload here will make distributed working better. So especially from residential. So if you're going to have working from a home office as part of a distributed working strategy, that gets a long-term burst because the existing cable plant that's in the ground now has a potential path to 10 gig download. That's exactly why I think these, obviously, these organizations are interested in this. If they can use the existing cable plant and not have to go and uh, pull new cable, that's great for them, keeps their cost down. They may have to upgrade some gear on either end, but if you keep that cable mm. plant in place, you're, uh, <laughs> that's a much rosier financial picture. <laughs> well, it's, well, there's no guarantee that this will be rolled out, of course, just because demonstrations like this happen, and sometimes these demonstrations are used as political tools to say, uh, especially in the case of US, where the cable is very widely rolled out as part of cable TV. Uh, sometimes these are used as political tools saying, oh, well, we could do it, but you'll have to, you know, we need money to help do these things. Or sometimes they fail because the, the equipment's too expensive or there's practical issues when running them at scale. So, and then many cases, the quality of the cable that's in the ground can be a factor. You may have a system that can do 10 gigs as they, so as they rounded it up to do, obviously it doesn't do 10 gigs. It does something like 10 gigs. Um, so there's plenty of reasons for this can fail over time, but generally I think this is good for everybody, like obviously homeworking, but also SD-WAN. If you've got cable plant and you want to deploy SD-WAN and you want more than one gig and you can get to, you know, nine gigs down and six gigs up, that's pretty useful for a lot of companies who need that. And you need to spend, you don't have to go and do costs if you don't have to fiddle around with limited bandwidth. Right. If you're at a small branch office or a small retail place, that's plenty of bandwidth for the things you need. Mm-hmm. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And there's a special offer for Network Break listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. Did you know there are more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles? You can become a CyberSec Pro with online training. 
It's never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. IT Pro TV has you covered everything from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. There's more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. They have engaging hosts that present information in a talk show format. There's live uh, training every day and shows go studio to web in just 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role, so you can find what you need. You can stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on-demand worldwide via Roku, Apple TV, PC, or your iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak to get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code NETWORKBREAK at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash NETWORKBREAK. Use that promo code NETWORKBREAK at checkout to save 30% off all plans. All right, back to the news. And speaking of certification, Juniper's announced it's expanding its free training for some certification programs and steeply discounting exams for tracks including service provider routing and switching, enterprise routing and switching, and Juniper security. Yeah, so this is uh, really good. I like this a lot. Let me just say this right up front. Juniper has not quite the same exposure to a lot of people in the market. And a lot of people say once they're using Juniper, they like the interface, they like how it works, and they wish they had have started earlier. So this uh, has made sense. Juniper's always been pretty open about its training, producing a range of day one books and so forth. But this is actually saying here, if you want to do our entry level certifications in service provider enterprise or security, the study materials for those um, associate or entry-level courses are now free. Go and get them from our website. You don't have to pay money to get access to them. And the exams are now discounted by 75%. 75%, yes. Yeah. So that's really like JNCISSP, JNCIS Enterprise, JNCIS Sec um, is really approachable. And I think this is a great way to get Juniper in front of more people. If people can say, uh, got no excuses not to go out and do this and put it on your resume, really. Yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense for me. You know, Juniper, it's in their own best interest to get more people familiar with uh, Junos and the Juniper suite uh, of tools. So why not uh, lower the barrier to entry as much as you possibly can? Yeah, and and absolutely the right thing to do. So much of the people want to do training. The barrier for a lot of people is cost. If you take away the cost, you get more people on board. People do go with what they know. For a lot of people who are just starting out, they don't know right. that there's a wide range of choices. And, you know, Cisco's got a lot of dominance here with its branding and a long multi-year campaign to get its stuff into high schools and universities. This, this is a step in that direction. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a smart move by Juniper. So, And there's a link. We have a link in the show notes to the open learning portal where you can go check out the details. Uh, moving on, Hawaiian Airlines is going to be the first major carrier to announce plans to offer onboard Wi-Fi via the Starlink satellite broadband service. Uh, plans are to roll it out next year on Airbus uh, A330 and A321neo aircraft, and the Wi-Fi service will be available on Trans-Pacific flights. Uh, SpaceX also announced a deal with a regional charter airline in the U.S. This charter airline is called JSX. They're going to be the first ones to actually provide the in-flight wireless by the end of 2022 on as many as 100 airplanes. So a small plane, small service is getting it first, and then Hawaiian Airlines will be the first major one to roll it out later. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Obviously, getting validated to use um, electrical equipment, especially antennas on aircraft, is a significant task. It's a massive safety issue, so you have to say they all have to be designed for the specific aircraft that they're going to be on, and then they have to go for a safety analysis to make sure none of the radiation interferes with any of the other equipment and so forth and so on. Yes. And so it's a significant task just to get a, a device that's going to connect to the satellite validated for use. Uh, and then... Getting airlines to actually make a decision to put it on is another huge task. And obviously, many airlines have already got contracts with other service providers that aren't actually available. So I suspect you're looking at a combination here of um, a small airline with modern planes 
that and and with Airbus in particular now because Boeing is having significant problems with its engineering team and they're having really difficult safety issues after several years of chasing profits. So if you look at the problems that happened with the 737 a while back mm-hmm. with the crashes and the, mm-hmm. and the subsequent fatalities, um, the, the basic root cause there was that Boeing decided that they were going to stop listening to their engineers and just chase after the dollar and get the product delivered. Um, I noticed that just recently it's 777X, which is the next series of jets that were going to be coming down the pipeline, now being delayed by several years because of safety concerns. And so Boeing is, anything Boeing does, is if Boeing says this is now safe, the safety bodies are going like, well, we'll just have to take a closer look at this. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I would expect to see Starlink, you know, being successful on Airbus and, you know, a manufacturer who is, has a reputation of being very careful about this sort of thing. And I wouldn't be surprised to find that JSX is flying Airbus or some other jet that's probably, you know, much easier to get certified on than, than some of the others. And also picking smaller airlines that don't have existing uh, broadband contracts with somebody like Boingo or whatever. Right. Yes. Uh, I will note uh, the Hawaiian Airlines is touting uh, once the service is launched that you'll be able to just get on the Wi-Fi, no registration, no payment portal, no login screen. I think that's a nice little add-on for people taking these long uh, trans-Pacific flights. <sighs> the cost of the the cost of those portals is more than the cost of <laughs> the cost of, you know, that's why it's so expensive is because by the time you do a transaction, you've got to pay 10 bucks because you need paid fees. You've got a software development process to put the portal in place and all the yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just easier to let it open, yeah. That's right. All right, uh, moving on, we have uh, some financial news. We'll start off with Extreme Networks. They announced their Q3 financial results. Top line numbers include revenue of $285.5 million. That's up 13% year over year on net income of $12.8 million. Yeah, so I think the the bottom line here, without going too much in there, this was a very strong score, a lot above what the analysts had expected. Um, and surprisingly, they're predicting supply chain issues will peak in June, um, but that the increased expedite fees and freight costs will impact their cash flows going forward. In other words, when the stock becomes available, instead of just waiting for it to arrive on a cheap freight they're now paying expedite fees to the freight agents to put it on planes and fly it over ASAP so that they can get through the supply chain. And that's being done by all of the IT vendors to try and, you know, get the get the sales out the door and book the revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I noticed in the discussion that they're saying they've got two quarters, two quarters of product that is blocked because of the supply chain. So they're literally sitting on six months worth of orders that they can't ship because they don't have everything. So. Yeah, they said they had an order backlog, which they're counting as $425 million worth of inventory. <laughs> that, is, that is a lot. <laughs> six months. Yeah, basically six months, yeah. Yeah. I can yeah. see that they and, would be uh, anxious to get that uh, onto the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they did have a price increase in April, but they also said that they don't plan any further price increases after that one. So I assume most extreme customers would have known about the April price increase. It would probably telegraphed a few months ago. Um, but it's good to see Extreme doing well. They're you know, unique supplier in the chain. They're sort of doing their own thing. They don't seem to really bump into too many people. So, you know, good for them. Yeah, the only fly in the ointment, uh, the Extreme is carrying gross debt of $315.8 million. Much of it accrued from its acquisition sprees over the past several years. But I think what they're trying to do is sort of outgrow that. And uh, mm. so far, the strategy seems to be working. I think so. I think they're in a good place. They seem to be holding on and finding a place in the market that they're going to be uh, be successful in. Yep. All right, moving on. F5 Networks, they reported Q2 2022 results. Revenues uh, came in at $634 million, which is down 2% year over year, and net income of $56 million. 
Yeah, so VAT5 uh, definitely struggling. Uh, the share price fell by 13% after they predicted the full, re full year of revenue would not meet analyst expectations. Uh, that's somewhat, some of that is due to the fact that F5 didn't meet the expectation, but do keep in mind that most tech stocks are decreasing against a background of falls in the whole market. So some of that is the market falls and some of that is F5s here. They've been quite clear to say that the, the decline is systems revenue declined 27% as a result of supply chain constraints and our global services revenue. So not only was the supply chain choked, but they're not able to deliver services because they've got no product to deliver services against would be my conclusion. And they say, while our view towards strong demand remain clear, our visibility into resolution of the hardware supply chain challenges is murky. In other words, F5's got a problem and it doesn't have a way to fix it. Compare that with Extreme or Juniper, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, F5 seems to be really in a bad situation with regards to supply chain. Yeah, and as you mentioned, their outlook for revenue growth for the full year isn't great. The company anticipates somewhere between 1.5 and 4% revenue, uh, which is down from their previous projections of 4.5 to 8%. Uh, and we know that Wall Street likes the future, and the future does not look bright. No. Uh, one interesting thing I took from the CEO, he actually said they've got related, they can't fix the problems around global shortage of specialty semiconductor components. So they're actually short of critical components in their gear. And they've made progress, but what they're going to do is drive customers from I-series to R-series. So instead of selling the equipment that they're shipping today, they're going to move them to the R-series, which is the next level of appliance that's sold in February. So customers get to, if you want to be an F5 customer, you have to get what F5 will sell you instead of what you might want to buy. Mm. So they're going to switch customers. If you've got a backlog order around the I-series hardware, I-series appliances, you might find yourself being upsold to the R-series in the near future. All right, moving on, uh, Juniper Networks, they reported quarterly earnings for Q1 2022. The company had revenues of $1.16 billion, up 9% over last year, but down 10% from the previous quarter. They had net income of $55.7 million, which is a lot better than this time last year, where Juniper lost money. Yeah, so down 8%. Uh, in the post-market on the firm's, you know, poor outlook because of the supply chain issues, but they're reporting broadly in line. So they met analyst expectations, but uh, the analysts say that Juniper's problems are not that bad and that you should probably continue to hold the stocks. I read some different research around that. Um, part of the reason for the fall is that Juniper has increased inventory levels and purchase commitment. So that is as it tries to get spare, get the supply chain in order, it's got to put up cash and put orders in in front and it has to hold inventory that it hasn't yet sold. So where before we had just in time with just a minimum amount, Juniper is now holding much more parts as it waits for critical parts to arrive. And I think also I just have the sense that Juniper is being more honest about this than other people. Juniper is saying we expect, you know, lead times and elevated costs will persist for the remainder of the year, whereas everybody else sort of says, no, no, no we'll have it fixed next quarter, you know, <laughs> just six months. And I think Juniper is being a little more honest perhaps than some other people, so we'll see. I mean, it can't hurt to say we never know what's going to happen with supply chain, and that could affect us for the next, you know, for the next few quarters. Yeah. So it does, doesn't hurt to put that, those cards on the table. Yeah. I think. Well, like I said, eight percent down is not much against the backdrop of a fairly lot, of, a substantial number of falls in the tech stocks, though. Yeah. Not horrible. Uh, our last uh, financial results from Amazon. They announced financial results uh, were focused particularly on the AWS unit, which had revenues of eighteen point four billion, which is a growth rate of thirty six point five percent year over year. Yeah, I just wanted to mention this very quickly because obviously the growth of AWS is a thing for people. Uh, AWS earned $18.4 in the quarter, which now puts it on a $73.6 billion annual run rate. That's more than analysts expected at $18.2 I just did some quick lookups here. Um, AWS remains smaller than Dell, 
So Dell is 101 billion in revenue per uh -huh. annum, but it's now bigger than Cisco or IBM right. at this rate. Cisco is about 50 billion, IBM's about 55 billion. So AWS is now bigger than Cisco or IBM, but not as big as Dell. And uh, as I noticed, some of the people, some of the more cynical people said, uh, Amazon ads, however, is now a $40 billion annual business, annual run rate business, and growing at something like 40 to 60%. Oh so you could expect that by the end of next year, Amazon ads will be bigger than AWS and your cloud company will actually be an ad company just like Google. <laughs> just, for, just for giggles. Uh, the rest of Amazon load, lost loads. Uh, particularly, they had a big investment in Rivian, which was marked down by eight billion, I think, mm -hmm. something like that. They had a bad quarter within their some of some of their speculative investments. So, yeah. Yes, but AWS continues to shine for Amazon. Oh yeah, thirty-five percent gross profit. Wow, that's, 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 just, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely mm. amazing. Congratulations for giving AWS lots of money, people. Well done. <laughs> 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 All right, we're going to wrap up with a surfing dog story about containers, but maybe not the containers you think. Uh, Hapag Lloyd, they've announced they're going to put tracking devices on 3 million shipping containers to get real-time information on location, temperature, and vibrations. 3 million. <laughs> 3 million devices that they've got to track. And globally, right? Ships and ports all over the world will right. have these containers. And not just in the ports, but as they move around the planet, right? These containers go all over. And um, so this company, Hapag Lloyd, is, is both a shipping company and they own a container. They have 3 million containers, which they have to track. So these devices, the article's quite interesting if you actually look at the hardware, because these things are actually proof up to an explosion. So even if there's an explosion, you'll still be able to track these containers or wow. find the remnants potentially. Um, they're upgradable and they are able to have various, they're planning to connect to uh, other devices via Bluetooth in time. So if you need more devices to track, you know, was it bumped too much? Was Did this container get wet or whatever? They've got plans to do that as well. That is just an amazing IoT story, I thought. Yeah, I mean, aside from the fact of, you know, how to handle all that data on 3 million containers, that, that's a huge Excel sheet. Um, just the maintain the maintenance of those IoT devices. They they're going to need batteries swapped out. They're going to need software upgrades. That's mm. a lot of work. They do energy recovery. Do they really? So the when as they move, they apparently they've got ways to cover recover energy. But like, uh, yeah. So there is some interesting stuff in there where they can actually recharge themselves just by movement. Wow. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> well, apparently they did a pilot program with 100,000 units in 2019, and that was successful. So now they've decided to roll it out to approximately 3 million 20-foot equivalent. So that's only the, the TEU 20-foot equivalent container. So just, just boggling. Interesting read. Uh, if you're in any way interested in what the future of networking looks like or what IoT networking looks like, this is something that'll start you thinking, in my opinion. That's why I drew it to your attention. All right, link in the show notes. Uh, that does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet, where we dive into their campus switching and wireless LAN portfolio. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Fortinet, we're going to dig into Fortinet's switching and wireless LAN portfolio. And you might think of Fortinet primarily as a firewall company, but they'd like you to know they do much more. Our Fortinet guests are Peter Newton. He is Senior Director of Products and Ben Wilson, Field CTO. Uh, Peter and Ben, welcome to the podcast. And as I alluded to in the intro, Fortinet's probably best known for firewalls and security, but you do also have a switch and wireless LAN portfolio. We're talking branch and campus here. Is this something you've been doing a while? This is a new addition to the portfolio. What are we talking about? Our switching and wireless, we've actually 
been close to 20 years uh, in this space. Uh, so this is a, a long time effort. Uh, and it's one that's quite successful for Fortinet. It's actually uh, behind our firewalls. It's the second largest product area in terms of revenue for Fortinet. Hmm. Okay. Now, that is a little odd for me to hear because I see so much of us talking about Fortinet and the 40 security. So we talk about the 40 gate. We talk about the the security fabric a lot in previous shows. Why why do you think we don't necessarily always hear about the Fortinet as the branch and the, the campus solution? I think the reason that the switching and wireless doesn't get the same amount of billing is, you know, we're known as the firewall. That's uh, something that, you know, we really shine at. Mm. Uh, however, our switching wireless business, as I've mentioned, is is quite sizable. And it's growing at multitudes of the, the industry growth rate because as customers are seeing what we can do with a switch and wireless, uh, they're really gravitating towards that solution. So um, it's, it's purely an oversight if yeah. we haven't mentioned it enough, uh, but clearly it's something that customers uh, look to and appreciate. So I'm guessing then, you know, if Fortinet would be saying to customers, we're making an argument here around a convergence of security and networking, is that the case? Yeah, that's really actually why we got into it in the first place, as I mentioned almost 20 years ago, is we recognize the need to provide that security, not just on the WAN interface, but throughout the LAN network. And the way that we've architected our switching wireless products, they're actually managed by the FortiGate, and we can apply those security policies, those firewalls policies down to the switching level, down to a switch port, down to an access point. So you're actually able to provide pervasive security throughout the LAN network. Right. At the same time, we've yeah. integrated the management of it so that it's easy to do that. Now, this is really interesting because I was reading the design guide preparing for this. When you connect a 40 switch to the 40 gate, which is the firewall and the switch, and you connect them together, you can actually use a feature called 40 link, which actually stacks them together and turns them into one logical management unit. Yeah, that's the, the magic uh, secret sauce uh, behind the curtain, so to speak. Mm. 40 link is our proprietary protocol that enables that tight integration, really brings those switching and wireless into the security fabric mm. uh, and makes them an extension of, of the firewall. Right, so that includes the wireless as well. So it all stacks together into one management and you can actually be configuring the AP security policy or can I configure the whole AP from the FortiGate firewall? You can do it all. Our FortiGate actually has a full wireless controller built into it. It's got mm -hmm. a full switch controller built into it. And that really enables you know both easy management because you've got a single interface that you're dealing with. But it also is great when it comes to uh, you know debugging and understanding what's going on because you're, you get all the information from the security side of things, mm -hmm. uh, the wireless side of things, the switching side of things available uh, for analysis. So you're not stitching together security policy from the AP to the switch to the firewall. This is all done from one console effectively. Yes. And you, you tend to get better security policy if it's all in one place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is there an operational benefit to putting it all into the FortiGate? Clearly there has to be. One place to visit, one place to configure one place to deploy uh, effectively means that it makes it extremely simple from a, an operational um, perspective. Uh, and also from an architecture perspective, whether you're, you can tunnel everything, you can bridge everything locally. We have multiple ways um, that can work perfectly with different architectures because one architecture doesn't fit all for all the customers. So it's not like we're trying to force anybody down a particular route to design a network in a particular way. Um, we just give them the maximum flexibility with the easiest operational and lowest operational overhead. 
Now, you're putting a lot of work here on the FortiGate, on the firewall functionality. So if it's going to be a wireless controller and a switch controller and a firewall controller, because it's all unified, and it's going to be the stack master as well, how does it manage to keep all that performance together? How does it manage to do all that compute and forwarding? We do a lot of offload, uh, for example, into our uh, SOC 4. Um, you know, we're big on uh, a development of our own assets, which has been a, a big part of Fortinet for a, a long time. But we have, for example, the SOC 4, um, which I think gives us 15 gigabits per second of CAPWAP throughput um, on, on a SOC 4 chip, even in the uh, the smaller devices, you know, for example, like the, the 60F, mm. uh, which is way more than, than anybody needs for a kind of, small office environment and then you move into the the bigger devices where you've got multiple np6 and np7 devices and each of those are capable of doing 30 plus gigabit per second of capwap throughput um you know for the for the tunneling of the mm. uh, of the ap's so right. in actual fact no it's not a uh, it's not a a performance um issue by any stretch of the imagination it's not a bottleneck i guess the same thing applies because if the 40 gate's doing the wan as well because you might be doing some SD-WAN or you might be doing some IPsec tunneling or handling a DDoS. This ASIC is also a part of all that processing too. So you don't overload the 40 gate. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got full capability to do all these, all those things, mm. um, you know, all at the same time. And that's, that's one of the drivers that customers adopt this because they, they do the physical testing and they, and they see it works. So with the switch and the AP being unified then with the FortiGate via the FortiLink functionality, what about network access control? How do you bring, is that all part built into it as well? Yes, absolutely. We have both the FortiNAC, which is a separate product, but on board the FortiGate itself, uh, we have uh, NAC policy control where we can uh, identify and do device posture and make policy decisions based on that feedback uh, that we get from both a, a wireless and a, a switch perspective. So, you know, I think it's, I think one important thing to to mention here is that as a company, Fortinet, we don't really do feature licenses. Mm. So when something's built into the FortiGate, it's built into the built into the FortiGate. So we're able to deliver all of these all of these things without people coming across barriers, so to speak, shall we say? So what you're saying there is you've got once you buy the product, you get all the features. This isn't a multi-licensed tiered licensing subscription a license. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. I, I mean. I've I've been in wireless, you know, for 20 years, worked for several wireless only vendors. And, you know, one big thing that used to um, upset me uh, when I was a systems engineer was um, having to try and sell customers AP licenses mm. on a controller. You know, mm. they've bought a controller which says it will manage whatever, pick a number, 5,000 APs, and they've bought 2,000 APs piece of hardware, and then they have to buy a license on top of that in order to get those to work. It didn't never made any sense to me. And that was a really refreshing approach that I think we've got here is that we don't license APs. We don't, you know, license yeah. switches, um, so to speak. It's just all built in. So what I buy the product, I've got all the functionality we've talked about, which leads me into the bigger issue. If I've got a lot of branches, if I've got a branch network and I've got APs and switches in multiple branches, can I manage them all as one thing? Is there a management tool that Fortinet's got that can do that? There is. And it's called Forty Manager. <laughs> How go. did I know? Um, I was going to yeah. guess, but I thought, no, I'll leave it for you. The the Forty Manager. Now, this is this is a tool that actually sort of sits across all of the Fortinet product suite, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if we if we take a step back over the course of several years, originally it's designed to manage Forty 
gates. Okay, mm-hmm. that was its initial uh, initial thing, where it allows you to um, condense and manage multiple policies, send out configurations to you know tens of thousands of forty gates. As more items have been added into the 48, more features have been added into the 48, you can control all of those policies. You can control switch and AP and 40 extender, for example, all those various things, all through 40 manager. But not only that, um, if there is a specific area um, that really interests um, or people see a benefit of, let's say, for example, AI operations, then you can get a, uh, a management extension appliance, an MEA for 40 manager, which plugs in um, called 40 AI ops. And that takes all of the information that's flowing through the network and allows you to create, for example, dynamic SLAs and gives you insights into what's happening on the, uh, what's happening on the network. Now, some customers have a real drive towards that. Some customers don't have a real drive towards that. But I think mm. the key thing is, is that we give them the flexibility to be able to build it as they need to build it out for what they want to be able to do. Okay, so we just heard the buzzword compliant AI ops. Can you drill into that a little bit more? Because that always causes people's eyebrows to go, yeah, okay, AI, what do you mean? Oh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think the term is AI watching that we, yes. uh, <laughs> uh, that we, that we hear, hear a lot of um, out there. If I just touch briefly on what AI means to us, I mean, we've got the, the 40 Guard Labs, which deals with 10 billion plus security events uh, and feeds and everything a day. You can't possibly do that on a individual, you know, human basis. You have mm-hmm. to have um, AI and machine learning to be able to analyze all those and become the market leader in that area um, that we have. So it's a case of adopting that technology and adopting what we've learned there and then applying that to looking at network traffic to looking at, for example, you know, why is this client, uh, what experience is this client specifically having from various different things, you know, the standard things like RSSI, but then you've got to look at ping, latency, jitter, all of these various things to manage what the experience is about. And then to be able to predict what's going to be able to happen and make sure that the network is configured in such a way to be able to cope with it. So this is really the challenge for branch networks and and having the firewalls all around and, and having, whether it's SD-WAN or VPN backbone, connecting them all together is how do you know what's happening out there? And then there's things happening out there. Can you be around 24 hours a day to watch them? And as people go into remote work and do time shifting and branches work on weekends more and all that sort of stuff, you start getting into a situation where you want a certain amount of things to just happen on their own. You can't, that there's so much more diversity in security, right? So you need some sort of operational support and Although we call it AI, it's just basically software that does certain things for you that you know need to be done regardless. Is that basically it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, that's really the whole idea behind the security fabric. What you just mm-hmm. described then, you know, the security fabric um, is all part of being able to get data from multiple places across the network infrastructure, whether it's SD-WAN, whether it's wireless, whether it's switch, whether it's mail, you know, all these various different things, we can bring all of this data in together. Mm -hmm. And this is where we really see the convergence of both security operations and network operations uh, into one with the security fabric, because you can bring that all together and give a holistic overview, which makes uh, decision-making easy. And and just on that automated piece, You know, there's different feedback from different customers. Some customers like the idea that mm. something else is making decisions for them. 
Some definitely don't like that. So the idea is, is that you give them a system where they can choose the level of, of automation that they want. And, and that's, that's the idea. So this applies to the campus as well. So this applies to the, to the APs, to the switch ports on the switches that you're putting out there. So this, this LAN equipment that we're talking about is in the security policy as well. You can actually do micro-segmentation at the edge. You can have multiple VLANs, workstation controls, all that two-factor authentication, identity management. That's all part of this? Oh, yeah, 100%. That's all built into, into the FortiGate, you know. Uh, and then obviously we have... Um, specialist products which plug into the FortiGate to, you know, enhance yeah. those um, particular areas. So we have Forti Authenticator, for example, which does a, you know, a, a lot of authentication uh, pieces mm. would be, a, you know, one that I would just mention. Mm. But yes, the the beauty of it is, is that it all scales from branch right the way to, mm. to campus. We've got customers with tens of thousands of access points, Um some of them split between, you know, thousands of uh, 40 gates, which are all managed centrally. Some of them split between just three or four 40 gates. We've got customers who actually deploy 40 gates as a wireless and switch controller first um, uh, uh, because they see the they see the benefit in that and then bring the security in later. Hmm. The beauty is the flexibility to be able to be all yeah. things to all people. Yeah, I guess what I was driving at was we've got the switch there, we've got the AP, it's stacked with the 40 gate, but I've still got, I haven't lost the switching functionality or the wireless features. I've still got NAC, I can still do micro-segmentation based on identity. It's just all integrated into the 40 gate firewall. Absolutely. Mm. And you're actually removing boxes from the network at that point. You know, we, yeah. we did a refresh at a school district and they went from having a firewall and a wireless controller and then a separate management system for their switch infrastructure as well, all down into a, a single box, mm. which not only gave them an operational advantage, but from a security perspective, they were able to have consistent policies everywhere and bring it all back to one mm. place for ease of use. So if we're talking about wireless LAN equipment uh, very quickly, does this mean uh, you guys have Wi-Fi 6E in the portfolio or is that coming? We're shipping Wi-Fi 6 to today. Wi-Fi 6E is coming out very shortly uh, indeed. So, uh, so yeah, we've got a, a full portfolio of, uh, of wireless access points, both indoor and uh, outdoor, uh, and, you know, two-by-twos, four-by-fours. We've actually got three and four radio um, access points as well. And one of the, I think one of the cool things that we do with our access points, we have a three-radio access point where you can turn all three radios into service radios. So you can have a 2.4, a five low, and a five high configuration. Now, why would we why would we want to do that? Well, this kind of goes back to the AI ops thing. And when, for example, um, uh, you have a large spike in a number of users, it means you can actually change the configuration of the AP to prioritize capacity. So you may have it as standard as a 2.4 and 5 or a dual 5 gigahertz AP and have the third radio as a scanning radio. Right. All of a sudden, you get a load of people come in. You can reconfigure it on the fly to pull up extra capacity. All right. Well, that does wrap up our time with Fortinet. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Peter and Ben. Uh, if folks want more information, where should they go? You can find information specifically around our LanEdge solution at fortinet.com slash LanEdge. All right, that's fortinet.com slash LanEdge. 
Uh, thanks again, uh, Peter and Ben, for being with us. And thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. And thanks to you for being a listener. If you like this episode, you can find many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Listen to us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.